My name is Kotz. Uh, again, I am the pastor here, I'm the teaching pastor here. And we are in a series called 316 because we are studying, we're slowing down, we're looking at each phrase, each word in the verse, famous verse, John 316. In case you haven't memorized it, here it is. Next slide. For God so loved the world, and it's highlighted because we already went over these words right here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One of the first things I learned in seminary was, when you get really familiar with a verse, you stop learning about it. So I'm trying to make it, you know, a little weird so that you'll lean in again and say, oh, what is this verse really saying? Okay. So we talked about God, right? God is a Hebrew, is a Greek word theos, Hebrew word is Elohim, right? God is a generic word, and we talked about who this specific God is, and we talked about love, how if God had a, a list of features that he wants to be known for, at the top of the list, it would be love, and the world. Last week, we talked about world and how we can't just use labels like, oh, that's the world and this isn't and just discount things of the world because God could be dwelling in the things that we least, in, in the things that we least, least expect. So that's what we talked about. This week, we're talking about this. He gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, every week so far, I have been giving you the Greek word because the New Testament was written in Greek. And it looks like this. This is the Greek word. Um, and in case you don't know what this is, uh, that's delta, like the D, I, D, O-M-I. So the, tr the transliteration is didomi, okay, didomi. And you're like, ooh, what does that mean? Is there like some secret meaning to the word didomi? Yeah, the word didomi really literally means gave. So there's nothing special about this word. There's no secret underlying meaning. You could peel the layers and the word gave is still there, you know? So uh, there's nothing special about this, right? So, but, so today we're not gonna be focusing on the word give or gave because, again, if you know what give means, then that's what it means. But I want to ask the question, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Aren't there other ways to show that you love somebody, right? So the question we're going to be focusing on is this. Why did God give us his son as opposed to other ways, right? Like, if God says, I love you so much, I give you my son, I mean, that's one thing, right? But if I were to say, I love my wife so much, I gave her my, like, does it have to be that? Like, couldn't God have just said, for God so loved the world, he put in clouds, I love you, and every language in the world <laughs> in the sky. Like, he could have done that, right? Like, did it really require a sacrifice? Have you thought about this? Like, he could have just said, like, on the first day of every year, the whole world would be filled with flowers and it's gonna smell so good and aromatic, right? He could have done that. But the verse says, for God so loved the world, he gave his son, his only son, his most valued position. Like he gave away his, like, is that really the only way that he could have loved his son? Have you ever thought about this? Right, like, isn't there any other way he could have done this? So in order to um, understand why, love and giving his son are connected to each other, why it has to be paired with each other. We're gonna do a little background con contextual study today. So we're gonna go all the way back to the book of Genesis because I love the book of Genesis. And we're gonna be, I know, I know it's like, Cos, why don't you just teach the book of Genesis? Actually, maybe later this year, we're gonna do the same thing with Genesis chapter one, where we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, that'll be later this year. But uh, today we're gonna be looking at a character by the name of Abram. Now, if you heard the name Abram, or maybe you're like, I've heard of Abraham, same character, 
Halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way story in, his name changes from Abram to Abraham. His wife's name is Sarai, and that changes to Sarah, right? In both cases, the, the, the breath of God is added. So Abram becomes Abraham, and Sarai becomes Sarah. There's a sound. That's a different sermon. We're not going to talk about that. Okay, but the character of Abram is directly correlated to why God had to give up his son as a sign of his love for us. So we're going to be looking at that, okay? So we'll start from Genesis chapter 11, towards the end of chapter 11, okay? And this is where we get to know the husband and wife. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, or Sarai, or Sarai. I've heard preachers say that. Okay, now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now, when we read it on the surface level, we're like, oh, they can't have kids. In the Jewish mind, when they wrote this and when they heard this for the first time, it told them more than just the fact that she couldn't have kids. Because in those days, very different to today, um, today, when you say like, how come we aren't having like five, six, seven kids like our grandfather did or grandparents did or great grandparents did, right? It's because it's expensive to have kids, right? Like my wife and I are like, two kids, we're done because we can't afford it anymore, <laughs> right? It's, it's like an economical stress to have more kids. In the olden days, the more kids you had, the more economically um, secure you were because back then, it was more agricultural. You had more animals. The more kids you had, the more people you had to work the farm, the harvest, right? More people to labor, to protect your field. So the more kids you had, the more you saw it as a blessing from God. If God is a good God and he wants the best for you, then he will give you a lot of kids. So for a family that had back then like 10 kids, eight kids, you know, a lot of kids, more than we do today, to say that you have none was like a stark contrast. And because of that stark contrast, they said, well, you know, with children, you have good reputation in your community, you have a good legacy, you have financially secure, secure you're stable. But the fact that you don't have any kids must mean, and this is what they thought, okay, which wasn't true, now we know it's not true, but back then this is what they believed to be true, that if you don't have kids, it's because you are cursed, cursed by God. They believe that you have some negative stigma attached to you. It must be some kind of sin. You must have done something to offend God where God is like, I'm not gonna give you any kids. This is what they used to believe. So from this single verse, we already know that Abram and Sarai are worried about their future. And they also know that people look at them differently than other families. Okay, so that's the setting of this story. Then the Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, remember, if you don't have kids, your future is shaky. You don't know what's going to be ahead of for you because if you grow old, right? Right now you might be living in your father's house, but if you, when you grow old, you don't have people to take care of you. Right, so what do you do? So they want to like stick close to their community as possible because you know maybe if my kids can't take care of me, I have neighbors in my community that will take care of me. God is saying, "Hey, Abram, Sarah, yeah, pick up your stuff and go. Leave your father's house. Leave your people. Leave this land, and I'm going to show you a different place you're supposed to dwell." So what is God doing here? He's Take, he's pulling out the rug from underneath them. They're, he's trying to make it so that, that they're like, we don't know if you have a future anymore. We don't even know if you have a tomorrow anymore. And then the famous verse, it might not be famous to you, but if you're Jewish, this is a very famous verse, chapter 12, verse one. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah, verse two, sorry, verse two. Uh, it says, I will make you into a great nation 
and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So God here makes three promises. I don't know if you caught that. Three promises, right? So he says, I'm going to take you away from your comfort, your security, all that good stuff. And here are the three promises. He says, number one, oh, next slide. He said, the first thing I'm going to give you is this. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Okay, so it's like, whoa, in order for me to be a nation, I need more than one or two kids. I need a lot of kids. Like, yeah. So God's like, I'm going to take you out of your place. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. The second promise he made, he says, and I'm going to give you a land. Because if you're going to have a nation, you need a physical location. And if you're going to pull me out of my father's land, where is our new land? I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to promise you a land. We'll call it the promised land. You probably heard that in the Moses story, right? And then, you know, if you're going to be there, and you're going to have a lot of kids, but if you're starving, that means nothing, right? So I'm also going to give you some blessings, whatever that might mean. Maybe monetary, it might be, you know, you know, many crops, I don't know, but you're going to be blessed. And he says, because of these three promises, you are going to be able to bless the nations, meaning the whole world is going to change. The whole world's going to be better because of what you're going to have. So Abram's thinking, okay, so this is a temporary loss, you know, I'm going to lose my security, but if I follow God, I'm going to get all these things. So sure, let's do it. Right, So he says, let's do it, God. We're going to do this. Okay, Sarah, let's go. Let's pack our stuff. Let's go. We don't have any kids. It's easy to pack because no diapers, nothing like, just, just our stuff and go. So they pack up and they go. Now, the thing that is interesting about that promise is that God was very vague about a lot of things. For example, timing. What does the blessing look like, right? So as they're traveling, Abram starts to think, hmm, when is this actually going to happen, right? So the question on his mind is this. How soon does God fulfill his promise? Right? Maybe God has spoken to you and said, I promise you this. And you're like, but when? <laughs> right? And what form is it going to come? As a matter of fact, since he had no clue when it's going to happen, he starts putting things into his own hands. Later on in the story, he's like, I guess we, haven't had, we don't have kids yet. I'm nearing 100. So uh, what if... Um, what if my wife's servant and I get together and have it? Like, they try to put it in their own hands, and God's like, no, that's not it, right? There's another story where Abram is actually helping four, uh, defeat four kings, and he, he wins the war. And then there's all this bounty that comes with it. And he's like, no, I refuse to accept it because God's the one that's going to give me the blessings, right? And he's like, good job, me. You know, I fought off the temptation of being rich because God is the one that's going to make me rich, Right? That's chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, he hears from God again. This is chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, this is like the cool Sunday school answer. You're like, okay, you know, I had all these riches and I said no to it. It could have been mine, but I said no because I want my reward to come from you. So, God, where is uh, my reward? And God comes in and says, I am your reward. And Aaron's like, I know I'm not supposed to cringe right now, but it hurts, you know, right? Like, yeah, you're, yes, Lord, you are my reward. Thank you so much. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking for, like, kids. You know, I'm looking for money. I'm looking, right? And so in, in the Jewish circle, they, you know, when you have the guts to, like, speak back to God, it's called chutzpah. This, he has it right here next verse. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He's saying, 
Yeah, yeah, sure, yes, you are my reward, yes, I'm so happy that you're my reward, but come on, I, I need stuff, <laughs> right, I need kids. As a matter of fact, you know that promise that you say you're gonna give me children and you're gonna give me a lot of stuff? At this rate, because I have no one to pass all my stuff to, uh, my servant, all my stuff is gonna go to my servant, you said that I'm gonna be a great nation, not my servant, you know, so um, what do you say about that? I don't know if you've been in a situation where you're like, God, you know, you promised me this, and God's like, yes, you're right, I am your reward, and you're like, yeah, that's cool, you know? <laughs> or maybe into your spouse, you're like, you know, so it's my birthday, what am I gonna get? And they're like, I am your gift. It's like, no, yeah, I love you, dear, but you know, like, I was hoping you'd get me a new car, you know, whatever, okay. Um, that's never happened in our relationship, because, you know, Okay, um, so next verse, <laughs> before let's move on. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, and he's referring to the servant, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he's like, God's like, no, I remember my promise to you, and I know it was vague back then, but it'll be more specific now. The, 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 I'm gonna make you into a great nation, not your servant, you, your flesh and blood. You're gonna have kids one day. Right, God's doubling down, and he's, he's clarifying the promise now, okay? Remember, there's three promises. Let's, so God is like, Abram's, you know, God's looking at Abram and it's like, uh, I, I, I can see that you're, you don't trust me right now. So he took him outside and said, Abram, look up in the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Remember, God was vague about how many kids he was gonna have, so he said, here, if you have no idea, you know, let me double down and show you exactly what it's gonna look like. Took him outside, look at the stars. If you can't count the stars, well, that's because that's how many offsprings you're gonna have. To which Sarai's like, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> but, um, you know, the story unfolds in a better way than you would think. Okay, so, Abram at this point is like, mm, okay, okay, I think I could, I could trust you again. So, next verse. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. It's like, yes, that's right. All I ask from you in this promised exchange is that I promise you these things, all you have to do is trust in me. All you have to do is believe in me. All, I have, all you have to do is maintain this faithful relationship with me. He's like, okay, got it. Next verse. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that's where Abram used to live, to give you this land to take possession of. Abram, look where you're standing. That is the land you're gonna have. Like, whoa, this right here? It's like, yes, this is your land. It's like, oh, so, yeah, okay, so you told me how many kids I'm gonna have, a lot, and now you told me where this land is. Okay, thanks for the clarification, you know, let's keep going. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain position of it. It's like, you know, there are other people who are living here now, and if I just kind of come in and just take over the land, that doesn't feel right. Like, how can I know for sure that you are telling me the truth and I could trust you, right? So at this point, he's like, okay, let's do something that will solidify everything. Something that will make it so clear for you that you can't deny it. Here it is. And this is gonna sound weird to you. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, which I'm sure he had laying around, I don't know, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, at this point, us readers in the 21st century, we're kind of like, I don't get it. Like, 
What is he doing? But to the people who read this originally, they knew exactly what this was. Because in the ancient Middle East, this was a common way of creating a contract. So let's keep reading. Abram brought all these to him, cut them into two, arranged the halves opposite from each other, and the birds, since they're so tiny, you know, he did not cut it in half, right? So take a cow, cut it in half, goat, cut it in half, and they put it on both sides on a little, um, it's like a flat ground with a little of a dip in the middle, so the blood would drain to the middle. In the ancient Near East, so this is not original to the Jews, this is everybody back then, they called this cutting a covenant. Next slide. Cutting a covenant. If you've probably heard somebody say, I'm cutting a covenant or cutting a contract, this is where it comes from, right? So this is a ritual back then, this is how they made contracts, a covenant. Right? And usually when two people are coming together and shaking hands, they didn't have like a contract to sign or anything, right? Because they didn't have, not everybody read back then, and they didn't have pens. So the way that they did this is not on a handshake. What they did was they brought animals and they cut it in half. Usually of the two parties, one is greater than the other. So the way this works is this. Here's an image, an artist's depiction, right? They cut it in half, the blood will drain to the middle. And after this happens, the greater of the two party will walk through the middle. Next slide. And as they walk through it, they get the hem bloody. So the blood will splash up and they will get it right. And as they walk through there, and the robe is getting bloody, they will recite this. This is what they would say. May God do to me what we have done to these animals if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant. So you're like, okay, I don't want that to happen to me, so I will keep my promise. This is what God is saying. Like, we're going to do this right now. And after the greater of the two parties pass through, then the second person in the contract, the lesser of the party, would walk through following the person saying the exact same words. May God do to me what we have done to these animals if I do not do my, fulfill my end of the, of the covenant, right? And we see this happen again, like they refer back to this story in Jeremiah 34. It's like a common practice back then. And usually, after the, the, the contract has been fulfilled, at the very end of it, the greater of the two parties looks at the whole thing. So let's just say the covenant was like, let's do a business deal together. And let's just say the business is now done. The greater of the two parties will look at the whole thing and he'll like look at it with satisfaction, you know, with a smile. It's like, hmm, yeah, yeah. And then he will say, hmm, okay, I think it's complete. Or it is finished. These are the words that he would say. And in the New Testament, um, they actually had it in, on written paper. This is uh, N.T. Wright, scholar. This is what he says. It's the word that people would write on a bill or a contract after it had been fulfilled. It means it's dealt with, it is finished. Okay, so that's how the whole contract works. The covenant works like that. Now, I threw a lot of information to you guys, and a lot of you are like, I don't get it. You know, I caught the last part because I forgot the first part, you know, because your brain's like a sponge. I thought, what is the best way to de demonstrate this? You know, in preaching class, they teach you you're supposed to you know, meet people where they are. I realized that we're a very text-savvy uh, uh, culture, so I made this into like a little text chat. Okay, so here, this is God. He goes up to Abraham and says, hey, follow me and I'll give you descendants, land, and blessings. This is a recap, okay? Now, he thinks about it for a second and Abram says, okay, right? Now, a few days pass, a few months, I don't know, a few weeks, and then all of a sudden, Abram's like, you know what, I haven't heard from God in a while, so he goes, hey, about those rewards that you promised me, right? God's response, silly, I'm your reward, <laughs> okay? 
And now Abram's like, should I talk back to him? Should I, right? So we have this little bubble, you know, the bubble where it's like <laughs> dot, 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 dot. And I'm like, ah, oh, uh, should I tell him? And he's like, chutzpah, chutzpah. Okay, let's go. He says this, you promised me descendants, land, and blessings. Right? Yes, I love that you offered yourself as a reward, but still, right? And what we just read right now is God saying this, cross my heart and hope to die. Literally, right? And he has like goats and rams and you know, all that stuff down there. Okay. So are you guys with me now? Yeah? Okay, okay. So we have the animals. They're cut in half. They're right there. And all they have to do is walk through it. And then the deal is signed. Okay? But something interesting happens in this story. At the, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So, you know, this is a big deal for him. because He's like, I'm going to get all, I left everything behind me so I could have all this. All right, let's sign the contract. And he falls asleep, right? Scholars say that some, maybe it is God who put him in a deep sleep because the word deep sleep here is the same word that was used in the creation story when they put Adam into a deep sleep. So they think it might be God who caused this. I don't know. Okay, then this happens. Then the Lord said to him, remember, Abram's sleeping, so he's probably whispering in his ear, Psst, hey, let me t- give you more information about the contract. Know for certain that, your four, for, that for 400 years, your descendants, which means you're going to have kids, will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So the three promises I gave you, they're all not going to show up at the same time, and maybe not in the way that you want it to show up. They're all going to come to you in sequence. First, you will have a lot of descendants. And then they're going to be taken away and they're going to be enslaved in a land that is not your own. We know, because we know the next book of the Bible, that place is called Egypt. They're enslaved there for 400 years. Then he says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So you're going to come out of Egypt. We know this because Moses did that. And when they come out, they're coming out with a lot more stuff than they did when they went in. So there's the blessings that he promised them, right? You, however, Abram, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. It's like you're going to be dead when this happens. So you're not going to see most of this stuff, right? In the fourth, oh, next slide. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this land for the sins of the Amorites has, yet, uh, has not yet reached its full measure. So he's saying, your ancestors will come back here and you will receive your land. The reason why you can't have your land right now is because the people who are living here, they're doing pretty good and eventually they're gonna destroy themselves and then you'll come in. So right now it's occupied. When you come back, it'll be less occupied and that's when you could take this land. So he's like, here are your three promises coming in three different times. You're not gonna see most of it, but it will be there, I guarantee it, right? And that is like the fine print of the contract. Now it's time to sign, but Abram's sleeping, right? So look what happens. When the sun has set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, if you use an NIV, which this is the New International Version of the Bible, this this is what it says, okay? But if you want, you could Google this. You could go to your favorite Bible app or use a different translation. You'll notice that the word with right here is not there in the original language. It's actually the word and, and. 
So what it should say is that when the sun had set in the dark, oh no, go back. Uh, uh, the darkness had fallen. A smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, the smoking fire pot, the smoke is usually represent, it represents God, right? So in sacrifices and all these different uh, rituals you've seen probably ancient Jews do, there's always smoke. If you go into the Holy of Holies, there's smoke. God is represented here by smoke. And then, so first the smoke passes through the two animals, the two sides of the animals, the carcasses. And then after that, a blazing torch, fire starts to pass through. And you know, this is not Abram walking on fire, okay? Like there's never been a part in the Bible where people are represented by fire. This fire is also God. So if you look at the Bible, you'll see that God is represented by fire also. The burning bush is an example, right? So God passed through the two animals twice, once for himself and the second time for Abram. What does that mean? What is he doing here? Abram slept through this whole thing, so he wasn't there to do this, right? So next slide. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Wait a minute. The covenant's over. He, 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 made, he made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Wait, when did Abram? Can you do that, God? This is what the writer of Genesis is trying to say. Next slide. If God breaks his promise, God will be slaughtered. That's the smoke that passed through the two animals. And then the second time he passed through, this is what he was really saying. If God's people break their promise, God will be slaughtered. He's playing both sides of the game. If God doesn't come through on the three promises, God is slaughtered. If God's people fall short on their promise to be faithful to God, God is slaughtered. Both cases, God is slaughtered. So, since then, smoke and fire became a symbol of God's promise with his people. So if you think about all the rituals, you'll see that there's always fire and smoke involved, right? When there's a sacrifice, they put it on fire and they let the smoke rise to the top. Everywhere in the Bible, you'll see fire, smoke, fire, smoke. Every ritual that's connected to fire and smoke is a reminder to themselves and to God that they had this contract. God, you told me that we're gonna have land. God, you told us that we're gonna have descendants. You told us that we're gonna have blessings. Or whenever you're not feeling good, you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm doing good. And then you see the fire and the smoke, you're like, you're right, okay, God remind, he's, this reminds me that God promised me that I will have descendants, I have blessings, I will have land. So this became a ritual, happened every single day. And as a matter of fact, they had exact time when they did this. They did it twice every day. Nine in the morning, they had a sacrifice with fire and smoke. Three in the afternoon, fire and smoke. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., every day they would, Sacrifice rams, heifers, doves, pigeons, whatever animal that they wanted to sacrifice. Usually it was Thor's, those animals, because it calls back to that promise, to that contract, right? And they'd mind them, 9 o'clock, 3 p.m., 9 o'clock, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., until a few thousand years later, about 2,000 years ago from where we are right now, on a specific Friday, a very special Friday, God sent his son his name is Jesus, and on that Friday, he was whipped, he was tortured, and he was hung on the cross at 9 a.m., and he breathed his last breath at 3 p.m. 
John picked up on this promise and it has been fulfilled in his day, and this is what he wrote. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. He's hanging from the cross. He slaughtered his dripping blood. Next verse. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Then, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. The exact words you're supposed to say when a covenant or a contract has been fulfilled. So, why, going back to the question, why did God give us his son? Why was this the way that God had to show his love to us? It's because the fulfillment of the promise which covered our inadequacies was being played out. If you don't know what that means, let me break it down. How uh, has God broken the covenant in this story? Has he not given them land, descendants, blessings? The answer, he has never broken that promise. No, he has not broken that promise. Well, let's look at ourselves then, the people of God. Have we broken the covenant? Have we not been faithful to God? Have, can we confidently say that we've been faithful 24-7 every single day of our lives? And not just us, but we're talking about people who go all the way back to the days of Abram, right? From the days of Abram to now, has any of his people not been faithful to him? Yes, we have broken that. And because of the terms of the contract, the penalty was paid on the cross. This is basically God saying, I will take the shorter end of the stick. I break my promise, I'll get slaughtered. You break your promise, I'll get slaughtered. So when Jesus hung on the cross and was slaughtered and died at 3 p.m., he was saying, if at any point now you become unfaithful, you don't have to come back to me begging me and asking me for forgiveness because that price has been paid. You see, we think that that you know, if you follow God and one day you kind of diverge and you're like doing your own thing, you're like, oh no, I'm so sorry, please take me back, please take me back. God's like, what, what are you doing begging? I already paid that price, so you don't have to do that. There's a story that Jesus tells, it's called the prodigal son, right? The son runs away and does everything bad that the father wishes him not to do. And when he comes back, the son is reciting in his own mind. Okay, when I get there, I'm gonna apologize. I'm not even gonna ask him to be a part of his family. I'll be his servant, and maybe he'll take me back like that. And as soon as he comes in, the father takes on the shame. He, you know, men back then, they don't run because it shows their legs, and that was disrespectful. He runs to him and covers him so that nobody in the village would make fun of him. He took on the shame. And the son starts to apologize. I'm so sorry. He's like, no, no, don't apologize. I'm just glad you're here. Jesus paid the penalty, it's already been paid, so that if any point we diverge, the road back to him is clean, is clean, is paved, it's, there's, there's no obstacles there anymore. This is why John 3.16 reads the way it does. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. There are other ways to show us that he loves us, but because of that contract that he signed with the animals, you know, thousands of years ago, because of that, he says, the way I have to demonstrate my love to you is through sacrifice, is through slaughter, is through death. This is why he gave his son. 
Amen? Amen. Let's pray.